Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Mark Lowcock, is the top humanitarian official at the United Nations. He serves as the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and is the UN's Emergency Relief Coordinator. When a man-made or natural disaster strikes, his UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, which is better known by its acronym OCHA, is the focal point for managing and coordinating the international response. This includes getting food and shelter and medicine and other life-saving needs to people affected by a crisis. As Mark Lowcock explains, the UN and the constellation of NGOs that coordinate their actions through his office have actually gotten very good at responding to crises. Keeping people alive who have been displaced or affected by man-made or natural disaster is something that the UN excels at. The challenge is that there are a multitude of problems competing for a finite amount of resources, and much of our conversation focuses on the challenge of funding these humanitarian operations. And we have an extended discussion about some new and interesting funding models that are emerging. We kick off, though, discussing the situation in Yemen. We recorded this conversation on November 1st, the week prior Mark Lowcock briefed the Security Council on the deteriorating situation in Yemen and issued an extremely dire warning about a famine that looms over the country. Lowcock explains what compelled him to issue this warning to the Security Council, and we also discuss recent moves by the United States government to call for a ceasefire in Yemen. The first half of this conversation is obviously very timely. In recent days, the United States, for the first time ever, has called for a ceasefire. And there is some international momentum now building towards a ceasefire in Yemen. In the second part of the conversation, we reference a speech he recently gave to the School of Advanced International Studies, SICE, at Johns Hopkins University, and I'll post a link to that speech on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I really encourage everyone to, to read it. It really does give a good current state of play of the UN's role in managing humanitarian crises around the world. As always, if you want to get in touch with me, please visit the homepage, globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can click on the contact button and send me your thoughts. I always love hearing from you. If you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, please do reach out to me. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And now here is my conversation with UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, Mark Lowcock. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune in to Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting season four, launching in June. 
Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. The Security Council passed a resolution in May in which it asked the Secretary General to tell the Security Council when we thought the conflict was um, likely or or um, could possibly lead to a massive food insecurity problem. So, so the first reason I um, brought this to the attention of the Council was because they had passed a resolution telling us we had to do that. Mm-hmm. The, the second reason, obviously, is I am the UN's chief humanitarian advocate. And part of my job, as I see it, is to bring to the attention of the world really big problems that unless different action is taken, you know, there will be a, just a terrible, terrible tragedy. And then the, the third thing obviously relates to the specifics of the case in Yemen. And I've worked on food security and famine problems the whole of my adult life, actually. I mean, my first job in 1985 was dealing um, obviously with lots of other people with the famine that took the lives of a million people in Ethiopia. And I think I've worked on all of the famines in the world that have happened since then, except uh, I didn't work on the famine that is widely believed to have killed 3 million people in North Korea in the mid-1990s. But on the others, you know, it's something that I've I've um, been involved with a lot before. And having followed the situation in Yemen for quite a long time over um, really the last 10 years, and having seen it deteriorate, but then be, um, you know, the worst prevented two or three times over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. it just... Um, became clear to me that we're on the verge of another precipice. You know, well, can, can I stop I, you there? Like, wh- why now? Why now are we on? Why the now? Yeah. Cause, so cause, that's what, earlier, you, what I want yeah. to come on to is why now. Yeah. So what happened was that there was a there was basically a good response in the world to stave off the worst. At the beginning of last year and the end of last year. The end of last year, the blockade that had been put in place by the coalition authorities following the missile attacks from inside Yemen into Saudi Arabia. That blockade was then wound down so the all the food imports and fuel imports and medicine imports could resume. During the first half of this year, the situation had been kept stable at a a bad level. There were about eight million people who needed help from the UN to survive, but we were able to reach all those people pretty much for the first half of the year. And um we were able to do that only because our very big appeal for this year of $3 billion is well-funded. We've raised 70% of that money, in particular, um, with large, unearmarked, unconditional, um, very prompt contributions from Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, mm-hmm. and also big contributions from the US government, the UK government, and the European Union. Mm-hmm. So we had been able to keep the situation sort of under control and prevent massive loss loss of life. But two things basically then intervened. Firstly, the military assault on Hudaydah, which Mm -hmm. is the key port and city through which most of the aid reaching uh, Yemenis in need comes in, um, and most commercial imports to the main population centers come in. The fighting around Hudaydah since June um, has led to the closure of the main road route from Hudaydah to the population centers in the north and the west of the country. Mm-hmm. 
And the main grain mills, called the Red Sea Mills, is where the World Food Programme currently have 45,000 metric tons of grain or possibly a bit more, enough to feed three and a half million people for a month. That was basically affected by the fighting and is not accessible currently to the World Food Programme. So the fighting meant that it was becoming much more difficult to get the necessary help in. So, so basically, stop, thing, well, can I ask you there? So, so sure. stopping the fighting then is therefore essential to averting the famine, whereas previously lifting the blockade was what was uh, central to averting the potential famine. That's a fair summary. The, but there's a second point, which is there's also been a collapse in the economy over the last three months. And that's reflected in the fact that um, the exchange rate the um, number of reals um, that it takes to buy a dollar has um, um, depreciated or the, the number of reals it costs you to buy a dollar's worth of um, imports has depreciated by 25% over the last three months or so. Now that matters because almost all the food consumed in Yemen and the medicines and the fuel are imported. So the effect of the price of dollars going up by that much is to reduce the number of people who can afford enough for their families to eat. Now, the combination of the fighting and the um, and that, is, that economic collapse has meant that we were projecting that it wouldn't be 8 million people who the UN would need to reach every month for life-saving interventions. It would potentially increase to 14 million. And, um, Which is about what, like not, half the population? It's half the population. So what I was saying to the Security Council last week is not that there is a massive famine now in Yemen. What I'm trying to do is prevent a massive famine. But to say to people the scale of this and how close we are to the edge makes it for people like me who've worked on these issues in lots of countries over a long period makes it exceptional. Um, and and it's possible still to salvage the situation, but I also set out to the Security Council what needed to be done in order to do that. And and you know, as you said earlier, the the fighting is is what's exacerbating this humanitarian crisis and this potential famine, catastrophic famine. Uh, and it seems now, actually, subsequent to your uh, address to the Security Council, we are uh, closer than we have been in since really the outbreak of, of fighting to a ceasefire. The The United States, the, the Secretary of State Pompeo and the Secretary of Defense Mattis released coordinated messages earlier this week calling on a, a ceasefire. Uh, my, my question to you is, is twofold. Um, one, do you, do, you, do you consider your address to the Security Council as having swayed one way or another the decision by the United States to finally call for a ceasefire? And two, uh, what are elements of a ceasefire that you would want to see uh, implemented should one come to fruition? Uh, well, it's not for me to, to make guesses about why member state governments decide to issue what new policy statements they make. What I would say is that um, the, one of the best systems in the world for assessing food insecurity is the FuseNet system, which is financed by the U.S. government. And that's called, um, that's the famine early warning system that you're referring to. That's it, the famine early warning system. And the day after I talked to the 
Security Council, FuseNet came out with their latest update, which said essentially the same as what I'd said. Hmm. So I don't think there's a lot of dispute over the risk, but probably you should ask the US government the question you've just asked me. I, I don't, it's not really for me to comment on why countries have decided to do what they decided to do. They, um, but what Secretary Mattis said is, is highly consistent with um, what I think needs to happen. Uh, um, and to protect the aid infrastructure, um, what we need to do is basically see a scale back of fighting in and around Hudeda so that the port continue to, can continue to operate effectively so that all the roads can be used safely and securely without delays and um, without constraints, but also so that um, the mills can be used in the way they're intended to be used. Now, there are wider discussions as well. Secretary um, Pompeo's proposal was for, was, for, was, was different in some ways, broader than my proposal. And he was, as I understand it, talking about um, things that the Houthi authorities needed to do and that the coalition authorities then should do, which, which didn't just apply, if I understood his um, announcement, to the, you know, the key aid infrastructure, but was, was broader. Of course, from my point of view, that's extremely welcome because um, the fighting across the country is a constraint on uh, the um, aid effort and is a cause of additional um, civilian suffering and makes delivering aid much more difficult. Um, something like half a million people have been displaced from their homes just in Hudeda over the last four months by the fighting. So that broader proposal that Secretary Pompeo and um, General Mattis made, um, I think is consistent with what I was saying, but, but is, um, has additional benefits. You mentioned earlier that Saudi Arabia and the the Emiratis were the key among the key financers, donors to the humanitarian appeal for Yemen. Of course, these two countries are also belligerents to the conflict. And it was also recently reported that they made demands and placed conditions on this aid in terms of wanting to secure positive press coverage about their humanitarian contribution. So I, again, I've, I've sort of Kind of a twofold question. First, how did you respond to this specific request from the Saudis? And second, more generally, how do you balance the demands of donors, which oftentimes have political agendas, with the humanitarian imperatives of, of being neutral and just you know, serving populations based on needs and, and not politics? Well, thank you for the question, because it, it gives me an opportunity to make what I think is a, an obvious and I hope everyone would accept the common sense point. If um, if countries voluntarily give aid agencies huge amounts of money in an unconditional way to save the lives of millions of people at risk, I think it is very odd to take the point of view that it's somehow not appropriate to thank those countries for what they've done and to be ready to describe in detail to those countries what you've done with the money. So I, I find this discussion about, you know, um, was there something funny happening? I find it a very curious discussion, actually. I think I welcome the fact that um, um, I welcome the opportunity to thank our donors for their generosity. And I, I think it is absolutely incumbent on us to describe to everybody 
how the money we use, how, how the money we get is used. Um, and actually, we have a fantastic story to tell on that, which I've been trying to tell uh, in respect of Yemen. Um, and um, I want to be, I want to make it absolutely clear that the the kind of information that um, our two biggest donors this year have asked for is the kind of information that, that all of our traditional donors have always asked for. Um, and um, we, of course, have to be very careful to live up to our responsibility to be neutral and impartial um, and independent. And um, it's very important to note that there were no conditions attached by um, our donors from the Gulf region to um, those donations they made, except that we had to use the money in the right way to relieve the suffering of people of Yemen. Um, so thank you for giving me a chance just to make all that clear. And I put something on my Twitter account saying roughly the same thing a couple of couple of days ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so so I, in general, it seems that this this um, discussion a, about funding specific humanitarian crises kind of speaks to the challenge I think that the UN system more broadly faces in, in simply like raising money for um, disasters that already have, have happened. And I imagine probably like a big part of your job is is trying to raise money for sometimes underfunded humanitarian emergencies. Can you just like very briefly for people who are not familiar, explain sort of the system of funding humanitarian emergencies as it currently exists. And then I want to talk to you about some of the interesting new models that you discussed in that site speech. Right. So over the last 50 years, the world has had this set of institutions like the UN World Food Programme, like UNICEF, the UN Children's Fund, like the Red Cross, like lots of NGOs. And all of those organizations who, whose work I, I travel all, all the way around the world to see in the worst crises, they do a really, really good job in saving tens of saving millions of lives every year, unquestionably, and reducing the suffering of tens of millions of people. All of those organizations are financed voluntarily. And that's just a system the world has decided to have, to have these institutions, but to rely on the generosity of richer countries to finance them, and also sometimes individuals um, to finance them. Now the basic system that exists at the moment is characterized mostly by um, being a bit reactive. So we, we sort of tend to watch the signs of a crisis emerge. We see the suffering grow on our television screens, and then we start trying to raise money and getting the capacity of the aid agencies in place. And it can take quite a long time to do all that. Um, particularly on droughts it can, it can be it can take too long to put in place the the sort of um the um support mechanisms despite the fact that we know that if we intervene earlier it would be much cheaper to solve the problem and we would also reduce a lot of suffering so um what i think is that what the world needs as a better system is one where um the finance and the organization of the agencies is sort of pre-agreed and pre-negotiated and then automatically triggered when disaster strikes. Let me give an analogy of, yeah, please, um, please. 
from the insurance world. I'm guessing you you have house insurance and probably car insurance. I do. But I noticed you didn't say health insurance, but I, I do now uh, ever since okay. the Affordable well, Care let's Act. Take, but good. The, okay. take the example of car insurance. <laughs> good, good. If you have um, the deal between your and your ins- you and your insurance company is not that if there's an accident or some damage done to your car, you then get into a uh, you appeal to your insurance company yeah. and get into a, a um, request to them to give you money. You have a pre-agreed contract. And um, the deal is that if a bad thing happens, you have bought the right from them to reimburse you. And that means um, if you've got a good insurance company and the case is not complicated, you should mm. be paid straight away when the problem is clear rather than being in months of negotiation or have, having to appeal to their yes. better nature or whatever. So that concept, that insurance concept, is um, a concept which is relevant to humanitarian crises. I'm not saying that every humanitarian problem is insurable in the sense that you can buy a policy, but the concept of pre-agreeing um, when an event is triggered and then... Um, the release of money and the mobilization of the response system, those concepts are completely transferable to the world of humanitarian response. Are there examples of that happening, at least in small scale, right now? Right. So there's two sorts of examples, which I'm very encouraged about. The first is actually an example of the use of actual insurance policies. So a number of the islands in um, the Caribbean, which last year were hit by those last September 2017, hit by Irma and Maria and those other hurricanes, had taken out insurance policies against that risk. In some cases, insurance policies were subsidized by donor countries. Some of them, like Dominica, got a multi-million dollar cash payment from their insurer days after the hurricane struck. The same thing happened um, when a typhoon hit Tonga in the Pacific Hmm. earlier this year. So there are examples of insurance policies being used. There are also, though, examples of um, what I would call contingency financing agreements um, between um, international financial institutions like the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank being used to do the same thing for events that maybe are not so easy to insure. So, for example, um, the World Bank can negotiate um, with a country that um, it will have automatic access to a large payment if, say, there's a massive flood or a big big earthquake. Hmm. And because the World Bank has a big balance sheet and can spread the risk, it can afford to negotiate lots of those arrangements with many of its member states. And then the money could be automatically triggered rather than having to go into a process which, which with the World Bank might take many months, hmm. which starts only after the event um, for which there needs to be a response has happened. So I am very encouraged and excited by 
those kind of examples. And I think they can be used on a much bigger scale. Well, what, what will it take to scale up those, those examples and, and, and to um, use those on a bigger scale, as you said? Well, um, first, it's about learning all the lessons as we go along. So, so one of the things about these big institutions is that once they've done something a few times, they feel more comfortable about doing it a lot more. Um, I think we need to experiment with testing out how much further insurance policies can be used and, and um, public bodies can help with that. So the British government has set up something called the London Centre for Disaster Risk Insurance, which is trying to experiment for the other kinds of cases beyond the ones I've given, like in the Caribbean islands, which might be insurable. And then for the, the countries of the world who provide the finance for the World Bank's um, support to its poorer member states through something called IDA, the International Development Association, mm. those countries are every three years topping up the pot of money the World Bank has for that group of countries. And they could decide to extend those kind of products that I've talked about. We have a particularly interesting initiative at the moment um, between the World Bank um, and the UN, which is to create a famine action mechanism um, which the Secretary General of the UN launched with President Jim Kim of the World Bank um, in September. And the basic idea is um, that the UN and the World Bank, together with tech companies like Google and Microsoft and Amazon, will collaborate um, on three things to, to ensure that we get much faster response in future to famines. Hmm. The first is data, so that we, we get information earlier in order to respond to a risk of a, of a drought leading to a famine. The second is putting the finance in place earlier through things like um, contingency financing or other risk sharing with the private sector. And the third then is to make sure there's a standing capacity, a delivery system always available to be um, put to work immediately. Um, it looks as though there's a serious risk rather than only from the point where everyone around the world sees terrible pictures on their TV screens of children dying. Uh, well, sir, thank you so much for your time, for, for explaining and talking through these issues. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to uh, Sir Mark Lowcock for speaking with me. This was a very helpful and timely conversation. And again, as I mentioned at the outset, I will post a link to that Johns Hopkins speech on globaldispatchespodcast.com. As always, a big thank you to University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for being an ongoing supporter of the show. If you want to join the ranks of the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute, you can hit me up uh, using an email and I'll tell you about our content partnerships. Uh, if you're just an individual, you can be a supporter via Patreon. It's a, a platform in which individuals can support online content creators like me. Uh, by making a uh, small monthly contribution. I so appreciate it. I will see you later. Bye.